They say patience is a virtue, but I can wait as long as you do for a change. Call me insane, but that's my age. Hi everyone, um, welcome to Untelevised, the podcast, um, a podcast sort of dedicated to exploring social change, um, what it means and how we might all participate in it. My name is Mona and I am with my co-host Fizeo. Hi Fizeo. Hi everyone. Hi Mona. <laughs> how are you this week? Yeah, not too bad. Um at the time of recording, we're still in our sunny spell. Let's hope we're still in the same kind of weather conditions when this is actually released. But the sun makes all the difference in Britain, doesn't it? Um, to how you feel and how the days feel. Just having the slightly brighter, longer days makes all the difference. But as busy as ever. What about you, Mona? Yeah, definitely as busy as ever. And um, yeah, you know, as as uh, <laughs> as the sort of social change game goes, um, been battling various issues with our legal system and our um, social service system and stuff um, this week, which, you know, will probably all warrant episodes of their own. So I'm not going to go through that today. But um, what we are going to explore today, um, I guess, is literally our identity and our sort of raison d'etre or whatever. But we are looking at media, news and media, um, what really and truly is media? Like, what is its purpose? How is it defined? How does it fit in with, I guess, this wider sector and mission that of social change? What does, what does the role of media play in that? And the reason we are looking at this is because we've been exploring democracy in various forms um, in this season. And we learned in our What is Democracy episode um, that press is one of the four pillars of democracy, um, which is very much where, well, this is your, this is your remit. (laughs) (laughs) No, I'm super excited for this one. Um, so, you know, as one of the as one of the four pillars um, that kind of upholds our democracy, we thought it was um, obviously very important that we explore it. You know, what, what does the press really mean? Like, what does freedom of press really mean? You know, what is the role of media in a sort of democratic society? And um, we spoke to Anjan Sundaram in our um, democracy episode, who is a journalist and who dedicated a lot of, you know, a lot of his life to exposing dangerous truths in the world as do many journalists, um, but really um, it does press and media still work or has it ever worked in our societies in the way that it ideally should or kind of in its essence is meant to? Yeah, similar to how we've applied democracy to housing and workplaces, we thought we'd look at it and apply it to how the media could be made slightly more democratic. And there's another very important reason that we chose to do this now. And maybe we'll explain that a little bit more in the learn section. (laughs) Yeah, let's do that. Okay, so let's define some terms. So as Fizeo hinted at earlier, this topic has also come at a really exciting time for us as Untelevised. So we have, as of this month, um, joined a a cohort, let's call it a cohort, um, of roughly a a dozen other news and media organisations who have been selected on a a programme, a fund, by something called the Langkelly Chase News and Media Fund. 
Uh, Lankali Chase are a foundation. They are a funder um, who, broadly speaking, kind of look to t- to address the severe disadvantage and marginalization in society. So they try and fund projects that might be tackling like really deep disadvantages and marginalization in society from various angles. And they work with various partners across the country. Um, and this is the first, they've just launched their first ever news and media fund. And the reason they've done this, which we will be hearing about in this episode today, is because they've also recognized that if you want to tackle disadvantage and marginalization in our society, it is crucial that you actually depict marginalization and disadvantage in society and that actually our media industry holds such a crucial role in what stories it even tells. What truths does it share? What facts does it share? What does the public actually end up learning about in our society? And actually, very importantly, what doesn't it end up learning about? So they have launched this fund. Um, We are very fortunate and very excited to have been selected as part of this fund um, and will be embarking on a sort of year or so of a learning journey with the other partners on this fund, who at the time of recording, we are also waiting in suspense to hear who are. Um, but we do hope that by the time this episode is out, we will be able to link you to all the other organizations also selected so that you can go and check them all out. So for the purposes of today, um, we will be interviewing Lang Kelly Chase to find out why they decided um, to fund a kind of news and media initiative and what that means to them. So the whole of this episode is about approaching media differently. And I guess in the spirit of our learn section, in order to look at approaching things differently, it might be important to look at what the current media landscape looks like. So the British media has been notoriously labelled pale, male, stale and posh based on the fact that our journalists are predominantly from a white background, 94%, male, 55% and university educated, 86%. And of those university educated people, 51% actually were privately educated before they even went to uni and 54% went to Oxbridge. So the more elite universities at that. Um, And some of the key terms that we're going to hear that oppose or approach media differently from that mainstream sort of sector is citizen journalism. So citizen journalism is when ordinary people document what they see, hear and think. And this is now happening at a rate that wouldn't be possible decades ago because of technology like mobile phones, laptops, the internet. Um, So now citizens or ordinary people, everyday people like you and me are playing an active role in collecting, reporting, analysing and sharing news and information. Um, So things like YouTube news channels, community radios and even podcasts like this um, could be considered citizen journalism. And I think a good example to think of was last year during the uprisings of the Black Lives Matter. um, We had loads. It was a video that was recorded on a mobile phone that sort of sparked things off again. Um, And then we had loads of social media mobilization. We had infographics, we had books, we had films, we had podcasts that were being used to educate people. So that's a great example of citizen journalism. Um, Some other terms you're going to hear are public interest news. And that can be understood as information that helps people in their capacity as citizens and members of community. So it's not just entertainment or celebrity gossip, but... um, It's platforms that bring greater diversity and democracy to the news media. Uh, You're going to hear also slow news, which takes its inspiration from slow movements like slow travel and slow food. 
and that focuses on the positive qualities of journalism, such as accuracy, depth, analysis and expert opinion, rather than focusing on what has become quite popular and prevalent in the industry at the moment, which is being the first and breaking news first. Um, And that's especially a problem that we're having with the rise of social media, where platforms want their platform to be the first to say something rather than taking the time to be accurate and look in depth and analyse situations. So slow slow news would be the opposite of fast news. Um, And then the last term that you're likely to hear is solutions journalism. And that is journalism that focuses on how solution stories can go beyond sort of inspiring or um, providing evidence and insight into something and actually looking at what are the solutions to these problems um, that we're identifying? So, and how can we really look at change and sustainable change? So we would hope that Untelevised <laughs> is a great example of that, where we not only sort of introduce a topic and talk about it, but we also try and look at practical ways that we can all take this further and make a difference in our own environments and remits. And with Lang Kelly, they framed um, their news and media fund around these three categories that Fizeo just mentioned, public interest news, slow news and solutions journalism. Those were the kind of categories that they said they wanted people to cover. Um, and so, again, um, when you are able to check out all the groups that selected in their cohort, um, I'm sure we will find that they all cover that in various ways, which we're also really, really excited to see and to kind of learn from and be a part of. And we will be keeping you updated, actually, on the progression of of this cohort and this learning forum because I think what is really great about this fund is that it's not just a fund that gives money. Um, it is actually a fund that's saying, let's also come together um, as news and me- independent news and media outlets to learn from each other um, and actually challenge the mainstream media industry. So actually, as soon as we get to kind of get our teeth into that, we will be sharing more with you on that definitely. But yeah, let's get into our discuss section. So this week, as mentioned already, um, I will be speaking to the Lang Kelly Chase Foundation, um, specifically with Karina Gaffney, who leads on their communications and therefore oversees the news and media fund that Untelevised are now going to be part of. Karina has extensive experience in the news and media industries and even speaks of um, as a child growing up with parents who worked in the news and media industry and therefore has always felt a connection to um, press and media as a way of developing society and tackling injustice. She spent 10 years at The Guardian, um, as well as time at Bauer Media and at the ONCA Trust and is particularly interested in the way that we share stories from the margins of society and find ways of exposing disadvantages in society by broadening um, the media that we have access to. What I guess I expect from a press and media field is holding those in power to account and really looking at everything from the investigative part, so really paying attention to where are the injustices and shining a light on um, what's going on um, there. And I think they have a specific role in revealing that to um, that to us as a public and as citizens, right through to um, leading, leading on where where are we really thriving as a society? 
and shining a spotlight on that as well. I don't think it is the celebration of celebrities and the sensationalism of, um, of stories that connect with clickbait and, um, and do harm, which is possibly, I think, where most people think most of the press is at the moment, unfortunately. What you've just described as thinking, you know, is what the press and media is or should be. Um, do you think it exists in that form anywhere in the world at the moment? Do you think it ever has? <laughs> um, um, I think it has. And I would say that having, you know, one of the one of the reasons I, I'm I was born in, in Manchester and um, got the job at The Guardian. I guess three months after my grandma died doing the Guardian crossword. <laughs> the Guardian was set up because um, some, the, the founder who witnessed the Peterloo massacre um, saw what happened with his own eyes, which was very different to what was reported by the police in the press. Um, and so I think at its core, lots and lots of kind of... Um, different parts of the media have been set up to hold those in positions of power to account. Whether it's local radio, um, whether it's um, TV stations, I think, and everything in between. So I think it, it, it has, and still, even those that are kind of not independently owned anymore, um, they do, at their best, do good investigative journalism. Uh, I think there's less and less independent news outlets. But I think that there are really interesting, that also kind of creates the space, I guess, when there's a vacuum um, and a need, um, it creates interesting opportunities. So I think for me, there's citizen journalism, um, hyper-local news, networks and um, collectives like Bureau Local. They're all doing really interesting things because there is, um, there is this gap. And then you've also obviously got the, the rise of public interest news and slow news um, and solutions journalism, which are again, for me, demonstrating that there is a serious need for this type and a desire by citizens for this type of news we um we recently um have really like dug into exploring democracy like in the in recent episodes it, through everything from its kind of again it's really philosophical meaning um and then kind of down to how it applies in society how do you have democratic workplaces how do you have democratic housing structures etc um press is one of the four pillars of democracy and we spoke mm. to journalist um Anjan Sundaram on our democracy episode and he spoke very much about that and he'd spent time in Rwanda um very very dangerous time in Rwanda kind of you know depicting the silencing of press and of journalists in Rwanda for example under that dictatorship so this is something that you know, we, we hear these exciting, you know, stories and there are films and things, you know, everywhere about, you know, the kind of like people fighting to like free people's voices and, you know, mm. stand up against dictatorships and stuff. But so again, like, what is the, like, 
role of the media, um, I guess, and even how people get to interact with democracy, you know, like understand democracy, participate in it. Like, how do you see that link? I think for me, it's a bridge connecting different parts of the system to other citizens to reveal what's going on that we may not necessarily in our daily lives have the capacity or the um, the connections to see into. So yeah, we call, we call it revealing the system to itself. And so I think for me, that's one of the, that's where the news and media field is at its best. And are there vehicles in place in a society to ensure that, that this happens, like that that is actually what media does? Obviously there are lots of legal bodies um, you've got the Press Association, you've got the, the NUJ, and then you've got the likes of Impress. And this is obviously just kind of what, I'm, what I've learned from um, looking into and, and sharing the News and Media Fund. Um, you've got Public Interest News Foundation, and there's lots of code of conduct that journalists should follow in order for this to happen. Um, and... I think in, in lots of spaces it does, but I think what's also, uh, there's a tension between the need to deliver financial return with um, money being diverted to really dig into investigative journalism or to, to, um, to hold those in power to account because it's a really fine balance and there hasn't been the investment within this field for such a long time. And with obviously with the, the rise of the internet and digital news, it's, it's made the, the world of delivering traditional news and media anyway, um, much more volatile. Um. It's interesting, you know, and actually, um, you know, you, you've said a few things there, Karina, you know, Karina sp speaks about uh, this system or systems, and we have an episode on systems for anybody that maybe is sort of thinking, what, what, what does that mean? Um, you know, in our democratic workplaces episode, we definitely look at the different ways that entities and companies can be set up. And again, again mm -hmm. what, what, what are shareholders, right? And what power do mm -hmm. they have? So again, I would recommend that people go and maybe listen to some of those episodes and some of the recommendations that those episodes give if you still want to kind of understand more. Um, I mean, this is quite interesting because, you know, on one hand, you mentioned things like citizen journalism, right? And, and this idea of kind of really telling, you know, getting a much more broad range of voices out there and narratives out there. But then you've also spoken about code of conducts for journalists and sort of, you know, a certain bar maybe that has to be hit. And so I'm quite interested in when we talk about democratizing media and, and getting, you know, and really giving power to the citizen, um, is are there any dangers with that? You know, does it just mean that anybody can say anything and we have no way of fact checking it, and you know it gets romanticized mm -hmm. because it's the people speaking? But if a journalist maybe goes through five, six years of training to become a journalist, like is, is something lost there, or is it all in all a good thing? Like, what do you think? Like, do we do, are there any dangers with democratizing media, so to speak, or does anything have to be put in place while you do that to ensure that? Mm -hmm. um, media and press are still kind of um, held to a certain bar. I can't believe I'm going to say this, but um, there's, for me, what journalists, when they're, at, when they're at their best, it's about curation and fact-checking and, and the 
the stuff that journalists do brilliantly when they the, the conditions enable them to do that. Um, because whilst I think it's really important that many more of us are able to tell the stories that we believe need to be told, it's also really important that they we we pay attention to the quality of those stories, which again is kind of counter to the the rise of you know fast news sensationalized news in order to generate clicks and things like that. And I guess that kind of touches a little bit on another concept we, we hear a lot about, which is freedom of speech. Mm. <laughs> Censorship, freedom of speech. Um, I feel like this is, is becoming topical in completely new ways these days. You just said, you know, obviously you have this kind of digital space where kind of anything can go up and it can go viral in a second. And then maybe there isn't really a chance to fact check it. And everybody's entitled to a certain feeling and emotion and, and so on. Um, we hear about things at the moment, such as we cancel culture, call out culture. Yeah. Um, at core, like let's say philosophically, do you believe that there should be limitless freedom of speech? Um, and, and then maybe is the calling for that to be censored or cancelled equally just somebody else's freedom of speech, you know? But, like, mm -hmm. again, how do we balance these principles in a, in a, in a sort of society at the moment where um, there is just such endless platform for, I guess, freedom of speech at such a speed? Freedom of speech shouldn't come at the expense of harm being done to another person. So I don't believe that freedom of speech that, that enables um, platforms to be used for hate speech. I just, it, it's a very simple no <laughs> um, uh, for me, which again, that's, it may be too black and white for some people, but um, freedom of speech should not mean being able to amplify hate speech. So... It's quite nice sometimes to have some black and white things, I think, in this very opaque <laughs> world that we live in. So I'm not going to sort of um, push you to kind of blur the lines there if you don't want to. So no to hate speech, essentially. And, and I, I could probably probe you on that and say, and what is hate speech and to who and in whose opinion? But I won't do that, Karina. I'm, gonna, I'm not going to do that because we, we do have other things to discuss. But again, this is obviously a very... Um, I, this is an end freedom of speech is an incredibly kind of again almost like philosophical kind of concept and I think people mm. it, is, it is a big discussion that, that um, keeps rising in different forms right and should people's twitter accounts be shut down and, and so on and and I guess again who decides right who yeah. then decides what's hate and what's not and, and and what's like the lines there is I guess the other side of, of the coin but um which does I think it's the idea of a, a democratic press and the question of who decides is actually, for me, super important mm -hmm. um, because um, if you really, if we really go into it, who who decides and whose knowledge are we privileging, then um, then we start to understand that currently the press, like most, particularly of Western systems. Uh, only predominantly privilege white people. And so who decides gets is is super loaded because it isn't it isn't democratic. 
I think this actually kind of brings me back onto something you, you referenced earlier as well, when I asked you what is independent media and press, and you said um, apolitical. Um, and I, I'm guessing, but you can correct me, that you meant not sort of maybe party-affiliated political. I mean, perhaps not that the person speaking has no political opinions of their own, yeah. perhaps, yeah. but that you're not tied to a a registered or, you know, specific body or a party or like an entity, perhaps. Um, now, that kind of, you know, what are your thoughts on having um, a state media? So in this country, we have the BBC, mm. um, British Broadcasting Corporation, um, which our tax money goes into, uh, I think, whether we like it or not. I guess people, there's a lot of things about people not paying their TV licenses, yeah, yeah. right? But but I'm, I'm assuming a little bit like how I definitely don't get a say over my tax money going to the military. Um, it seems that we also just have a state, we have a state media. Um, does that serve a role in a supposedly um, progressive democratic society? Like, does it is it needed? Can it be unbiased? Um, what does what what voice does that uphold if it's upholding the voice of the state? In an ideal world, the state a state media platform could help reflect the full picture of society. Um, in reality. It doesn't. <laughs> um, but then I think about, you know, the uh, whilst it's rooted obviously in old kind of um, old ideas of empire, I just think about the what the World Service does and how much it connects people and the qualities, the quality of some of its programs, and it's it delivers a real ser a, a valuable service to many. Um, if we're talking specifically about the BBC, so. Um, there may be the space for it, but whether it can be done democratically, as you've, you've been referring to, I'm, I don't, I don't know. It would be great if we could collectively decide what was on it and what, what needed investment, for sure. Okay, well, I'm going to, I'm now going to, I'm actually going to come to your fund now. So we've kind of given people a bit of a, bit of a little bit of a picture of just what press and media is, what isn't it, what should it be, what shouldn't it be, and so on. And um, so Lan Kelly recently launched um, a press and media fund. Um, but just, do you want to tell us a bit about that fund? And, and you know, you recently announced it. So what is it? Why did you set it up? What are you trying to do with it? If our mission at Lankelly Chase is to strive for a world healed by justice, equity and inclusion and where all people can live with dignity and opportunity in supportive communities, then there will need to be a role for a healthier news and media system. And it's Lankelly Chase's mission as well to challenge injustice and create the conditions for these healthier systems to emerge. And so in part, this fund is to... Um, to work with a collective um, of people and organizations who really want to, and they either are or they're researching into um, the role of the news and media system um, and sector that can support this transition 
Um, and whether that's infrastructure, whether that's um, how do we how do we create the conditions for the connective tissue, for example, between the news and media sector and also um, people. And when I think we mean particularly people um, who have experience of extreme marginalization, um, that's currently missing and in, in many parts. Um, and so we just want to pay attention to that, which is an extension of what we do um, in many different areas. But currently, is a very new field for us. And so we're, we're, we're stepping in tentatively, um, but feel really, really um, fortunate to be on a, I guess, a learning journey with a number of what we call partners who are all doing different things, but have a shared ambition for a healthier news and media sector. So in just completely practical terms, um, this um, is a fund, people applied, you assess their applications, um, you've chosen, what is it, 12, 13 or so groups, yeah, mm -hmm. um, who over the space of up to a year or so um, will be coming together, will be learning from each other, um, as well as you obviously having financially resourced their yeah. work, is that correct? Yeah. Um, you mentioned earlier that one of the issues, again, with independent media is um, being sort of answerable to shareholders. Um, what does your role, duty, reflections look like as a funder um, of this kind of work? What we want to do with the fund is um, to learn more about the news and media field in its broadest sense and how it intersects with our vision and mission. And so one of the things that we're looking to do with this is to support, I guess, a collection of independent conversations, partnerships, spaces where we can come together to explore what it means to reimagine and renew parts of the news and media system. I think the other thing that's really important to us is that we really want to encourage work that is led by or connects um, the voices of people who with lived experience of extreme marginalization, but also how the whole field of news and media can become much more diverse and much more reflective of um, the UK population. And so creating the space and using resources to create the space where we can learn together and reflect together rather than focus on specific kind of outputs. Because for us, it's the reflecting and the learning, which then will give us some sense of how we, where we need to go next. And so paying, paying attention to creating the conditions for those, those spaces to happen is what's really exciting for us. And I think it's what's really exciting. So I've heard from the people who are on this journey with us because not many people get, get given funds to learn together. Mm -hmm. The messy bit of change, especially when it's complex and it's emergent, um, we, often, we often don't see the, what we, you know, the messy bit in the middle, the mistakes that we make, the failures that happen that are all super important because it's learning. 
um, and and if it's held in the right way, it's it gives us lots of information about what not to do next or what to do differently next time. So, um, so I'm hoping that as a collective, we will share both what's working and what's not. Um, and, and we'll do that on a variety of platforms because all of you are just brilliant, brilliant journalists or brilliant at storytelling and have your own platform. So I guess there'll be various ways to get involved. And the other thing I think that's really struck me was how much, um, how much people wanted to be involved in an active kind of learning space, whether they're part of this original, this, this new cohort or not which to me is a real sign of the energy for people to really want a different news and media field mm -hmm. that is rooted in kind of healing and justice, um, but also possibly how underfunded and under-resourced it has been for a long time. So there's a real need uh, and a yearning for people to come together to really kind of learn from each other. We definitely look forward to sharing our failures with you. Um, so just as to um, Karina, um, we ask this of all our interviewees, um, but when do you think your work will no longer be needed? If at all. Oh, um, I... Oh, wouldn't it be a joy if if we weren't needed? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Make ourselves redundant, all of us. Yeah. Oh, wouldn't it be just wonderful? Um, my high dream is. Um, oh, 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 oh! Normally, I'm so optimistic. I'm stumped by this. You don't have to be optimistic. This is a this. I know the amount of people who are like, I'm worried. I will always be needed, and I will always fall short. Um, yeah. I, I think that there's then that's, um, that's realistic I am energized by the 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 sheer amount of people doing incredible work um, at the intersection of racial justice climate justice and social justice and I think the more that we can connect to each other and, and kind of really celebrate our collective vision and, and um, of, a, of a world that is rooted in justice. Um, I think the more we'll see that, that actually there is a lot of people doing incredible work. Um, and I hope that I hope I hope that that the momentum to do things differently keeps gathering pace. Um, and I hope that I hope when I hope we're not around in a in a in a not too distant future because we're not needed. I think that there's a difference between how do we keep sharing the learning and how do we create infrastructure so that we can be more agile in responding to. Um, what is needed for everyone to be able to thrive. And I think that, that that's gonna, we need that urgently because with climate change um, accelerating in the, 
way that it is, the world is going to become um, much more volatile. Um, so, so yeah, I think there's a need for for people to practice inquiring and learning. Um, that hope never goes. It's it's what keeps us moving forward. So this episode, I'm speaking to the very first person that showed me around the camera. So someone near and dear to my heart. Her name's Kerry Dingle, and I like to describe her as the same way I describe myself, which is working with media rather than in the media. She's the founder and director of a charity called Worldright. Now, Worldright is an educational charity that campaigns for change using film and an online citizen news channel called World Bites. It's deeply grounded in politics, and the platform describes itself as having an uncompromising commitment to global equality, with a campaign slogan of Ferraris for all. Now, Kerry's a pioneer in citizen journalism. She's been doing it for over 25 years, and through World Right, she's offered free film training to hundreds of young people, and assisted young volunteers in producing over a thousand programmes that challenge mainstream ideals, many which have received great acclaim. Now, Worldwide has played such an important part in inspiring me and my approach to media. It's where I first saw citizen journalism in action and where I first saw its power as a means to challenge the mainstream and hold the powerful to account. Indeed, I used to check for two and a half hours each way just to attend the sessions, <laughs> which I think is all the acclaim I can give. Now, I could go on all day about Kerry and her important work, but I think for now, let me pass the mic to her. Education and the media, for us, needs to be what's not being said anyway already. Having an ethos which supports democracy, which is the only basis on which we're all equal before the law, um, is very important. And we've seen attention to democracy diminish in the last few decades on the basis of people saying majoritarianism is unnecessary and evil or it's populism by which not just do they mean is it right wing but often they mean because it's popular um, and because of I would see unfortunately growing anti-working class prejudice and and contempt for working class people. I think we saw it very explicitly with Brexit, but we've seen it in a host of ways. And um, so for us, democracy itself, as well as the role the media plays in relation to it, is more important than ever. I, I'm not sure about the truth to power idea, because I think as Chomsky, Noam Chomsky once said, um, the powerful know the truth, they're very good at concealing it. So there might be limits to that kind of idea, but nonetheless, it does, the media, whatever form that might take, gives us obviously a opportunity to advance further knowledge, to say what's not being said, to challenge politicians, and to give credence to ideas we think are of benefit to humanity, which is of concern to us. It's a powerful know the truth. They're just practiced or very good at concealing it. I definitely want to explore that some more and the relationship between democracy and media in a moment. But first, I just want to cycle back a little bit and actually just ask you 
how you would describe the media or press in like its simplest or purest form, what does that sort of mean to you? Media in its simplest form is a means of communication, you know, and if it, as a means of communication, um, it's lacking if it is known to everyone. It's lacking if we can't all access that information and it's lacking if we're not seen as capable of hearing, reading and seeing whatever we want and making decisions on that basis. So it's usefulness and it's openness rests on a belief in our common humanity as capable. In other words, trust. And that's a massive hole at the moment. So yes, we have all sorts of means of communication, um, often one-sided, uh, often very biased, often inaccessible. Um, and for people all over the world, not just in the UK, you know, out of their reach. And as a result, they can be fed all sorts of um, rubbish. But I, I would hold with a ban nothing, question everything outlook and encourage people to read, see, hear and think for themselves. Okay, so coming back to this notion of media and democracy, we've been exploring democracy for a few episodes now in different forms. Um, and press and media is one of the pillars of democracy. Um, so you've spoken a little bit about this already, but what role do you think the media plays in a democracy um, in terms of how people understand the democracy, participate in it, interact with it? Um, why do you think media is an important part of, of a modern democracy? Well, in a, in a world that's growing in size, the more means of communication and ability to exchange ideas and challenge ideas, the better. And the media obviously facilitates that. I mean, obviously, I, I'm interested in, in making what we call citizen TV. And that's, you know, Joe Bloggs or, 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 you know, the public in general having their say and challenging ideas. That doesn't mean you might agree with what, you know, the mass of ordinary people here or in Belarus think, but at least having your say is a huge step in the right direction if you want um, to be able to control your future and your life, which is what democracy theoretically offers us. And I think we have a bit of a democratic deficit and we also have a rather unbalanced media so they are interrelated and problematic in on both sides, if you like. I'm loath to just blame the messenger for bad politics, you know, the media, in other words, which is what a lot of people do. They say, oh, well, if people have got crappy backward ideas, it's the media. Is it? You know, what does the media reflect? Uh, I think it reflects, yes, those in power and with power and influence, but it can often reflect something more than that. At the moment, I would say we have a very conformist media and that we're all too scared to say what we think. We're all too busy looking over our shoulders for fear of retribution. You know, people now, I was reading about a case this morning of a woman um, threatened with a jail sentence for a tweet that had been misunderstood, by the way, and the police were around her house. I mean, it's shocking. So. The media is important for, for democracy 
um, in that it is a means to say what we think and get our views across, absolutely, but it has its limits, as we know. And democracy is only good insofar as we have a say in what's happening and we elect politicians, for example, who are willing to listen to what people want rather than promote their own agenda. I think democracy in Britain is limited by the nature of a kind of three-party system, which is a bit all a bit of a stitch-up. One of the things we have been discussing is that there's sort of this baseline presumption that democracy in and of itself is a positive and is what we should be aspiring to. And um, we haven't yet really come across someone who's challenged that as a notion, um, but we're trying to look at the theory of democracy and then actually the practice of how it is um, presenting itself. So, so no, I think what you've said there is interesting. Um, you mentioned there... there are there are, on, on that notion, there are wholly anti-democratic trends, though. I mean, I, I, th I see that all of the time, you know. We had democracy shoved to one side during lockdown entirely. You know, it was not publicly debated. You know, people now think referendums um, and more direct democracy, because they didn't like the outcome of Brexit, um, are to be feared and to be put to one side. So I think if we believe in equally having a say in society, which is obviously what democracy is about, and us all being equal, and it's the only place in which we are all equal, it doesn't matter about your financial status or your sex, race, or anything else, you know, yes, it's limited by the blob of land on which you were born and your right as citizens, and um, if we want that opportunity, then, you know, as Karl Marx once said, you have to take the thorns with the rose, you know, and risk getting pricked by it. There will be things you don't like, but I think it's, you know, way superior. And I, I would support a more, you know, uh, direct democracy as the early Greeks did. And they, they weren't nice people. It was a slave owning society but they did advance the idea of um, more, the more, more direct democracy, you know, having a direct say in things. And, um, but unfortunately, we don't trust the mass of the population. I think that is the biggest... Um, that's where there is the greatest curtailment of democratic aspirations, is by saying, but you can't trust the plebs. One of the things we've spoken a lot about is lack of political education, especially in mainstream um, arenas like schools and like a basic foundation of political education. And you reference education through something you've called citizen TV or citizen journalism. You've explained a little bit, but can you explain a little bit more about what citizen journalism is and why you've chosen that method of media creation um, and the importance for you of that education and that baseline education and, and giving it to as many people as possible. What do you think that does in terms of um, both the media that we're consuming and creating, but also in terms of that notion of education? In terms of education, yes, there is the broader thing that we try and do through Citizen TV, upskilling people with film and media forms, whether it's film training, video, whatever you want to call it, you know, in order to get your view across well, you need those skills. You know, Picasso didn't do his abstracts until he learned to draw. We're not going to make 
and represent great ideas on film if we don't know what exposure is. But the charity, as an education charity, at its roots, supports the advancement of knowledge rather than socialising people. And unfortunately, a lot of people who, who rightly worry about people's lack of political education, they are trying to posit school, on schools or give schools um, the responsibility for sorting out the ills of society. Whereas I think if you study politics, great. If in secondary schools you have a really fantastic and you push young people to study history um, and English really well, um, it's not the role of schools to say um, you should have take this particular view or this is right. I think debates in schools are a great thing to do and debating in general. But I think I would just champion really pushing young people's knowledge rather than trying to socialise them, which I think is the job of society more broadly. I think where Citizen TV fits in is to fill a gap when it comes to political expression and challenging ideas. And in setting up a Citizen TV station, we're unashamedly uh, one-sided in that we are advancing ideas that aren't already out there. So we are trying to push and encourage critical thinking, questioning of you know, what's already out there. So going beyond what's already being said. And we're trying to encourage people who wouldn't normally have their say um, and haven't got the means to have their say. For example, back in 2005, I think it was, we'd shot a load of films in Ghana um, called Prick in the Missionary Position. It was a series that challenged the sort of main NGO type outlook, and I'm caricaturing because there's plenty you probably don't think like this, which saw the developing world as a basket case, as a very, and a very paternalistic pity fest, these incapable poor people, blah, blah, blah. And we wanted to challenge those notions and show actually people are completely capable of running their own lives if half the time the West just got off their backs and hand over the cash and less of the advice. Thank you very much. So that was the kind of uh, idea. And we couldn't get what we shot shown anywhere. So we decided, well, we'll just set up our own thing. And I remember getting together a group of people I knew who worked in different aspects of the media, in print, TV, film, all those getting them all in a room and saying, this is what we're thinking of doing, what do you think? And I think there was about two people that supported the idea. All the rest said, no, you can't do that. No, you haven't got a background in film. No, you can't, you, you can't, you can't just do that and say, say what you want with people. And I'm like, and it, it always had that effect on us at World, right? When people say you can't or you shouldn't, you think, oh, we will then. And so we did. I would absolutely um, agree with where you started in the sense that education and the relationship between education and knowledge and I would agree that it is about the, the the knowledge and giving people that knowledge for them to then make their own informed decisions and for me with the education and political education it is about just providing young people or people in general with the foundation so that they understand their place in society and their responsibility to society and their power within it 
and then hopefully decide to contribute to it. It's interesting, I think, because not only does citizen journalism contribute to democracy, but journalism in and of itself is becoming increasingly democratized by the tools that are becoming increasingly accessible, at least to us in the West, in London, where we're having this conversation. And you've mentioned there so many of the positives of that in um, challenging some mainstream ideals, holding power to account, people expressing their views and opinions and all of these things. Um, And we're seeing more and more people who wouldn't even identify what they're doing as journalism doing this uh, with platforms such as YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, all of these things, TikTok. Um, Are there any negatives to this or possible dangers of this sort of giving it quote-unquote ordinary or everyday people quote-unquote this power? Is there any, are there any dangers to this? No. The danger is those people, is that the majority of people might have access and be able to do all sorts of things, but whether it's Facebook or Twitter or anyone else, these are huge corporations and they are very reflective of government interests. So it's not just whether money talks or not, because I mean, I remember when Facebook first got started, we'd set up a world right group and we, I think we had six or 7,000, I'm not joking, members quite quickly, which was really exciting. And so Facebook shut it down and decided that groups can't be over a certain size. And not only did they shut it down, we had no access to any of those names or that information. And you then had to set up what became fan pages. And the idea was because the fan page, so you had to start all over again, the fan page would um, was, was basically a money-making machine. Because if you didn't um, pay for you know, audience targeting, you know, even your page would not appear in people's news feeds. So you'd have to find a way to get those people who'd found us originally, how to find them again, because they wouldn't see it. And, um, And it kind of turned us off. But so we shouldn't have illusions that this, all these new free social media is so free it's not, and they can call the shots, you know. I posted, uh, we made with a group of young people entirely reflecting their views on lockdown called uh, spreaders, how young people have been vilified as, you know, wanting to kill their granny, to challenge that notion that all young people were granny killers, um, which is a pretty disgusting idea that the government you know, it was in a government press briefing. It wasn't made up by us. And um, that was immediately stopped with a big warning for detail, you know, for facts about COVID visit, blah, blah, blah. You know, as though these people in their, these large corporations, in their wisdom, running these social media platforms have a monopoly on truth. Well, truth is contested. And if we can't contest truth, we don't have democracy. You know, that, that's, it's a lie. So I just think these, I don't think there's dangers posed by the mass of ordinary people having their say. I think there's dangers posed by either the state or large corporations or tech, tech, the tech giants deciding what they think is appropriate for us to see and read and hear. 
And of course, there will be crappy views expressed. So we ignore them and we have to learn to ignore crappy, crappy views. Otherwise, we actually give up our, on our own freedom of expression, which I think is a disaster. Yeah, and I think your, um, your statement that you made earlier, ban nothing, question everything, sort of summarises that really well. And it sounds like you believe that free speech should be limitless. So one of the things that I, I'd be interested to know your opinion on as well is in modern society, we've, we seem to have veered so far away from that. What um, society has become very successful at, or the elite have become very successful at, is encouraging us or causing us to self-centre. So um, aside from them putting up their notices, we've actually got people reporting one another or censoring one another, and we've got massive things like call-out culture now, um, cancelling, things like that. Um, so you mentioned earlier someone tweeting something and that having certain repercussions, and you have celebrities who, or people who are being cancelled for their tweets and all of this, a regular occurrence. So what's your opinion on, on sort of this self-censorship, but also how does this affect like the press and media industry. Um, and I'm, I, I think I know your answer to this, but do you see it as sort of progression or regression of society? I, I think this conformism and self-censorship is a massive problem and wholly regressive. You know, there is nothing positive in it. This is not about upholding good language. This is not uh, about let's have better English and higher standards which are always a good thing, you know, in terms of education and how we express ourselves. I know I could do with much improvement. I'm sure we all can, and we never stop learning in that regard. And, you know, in Britain, most of us only speak one, maybe two languages, whereas elsewhere people, you know, learn to speak four or five. I think that's masterful, masterful when it comes to language. Um, so this is not about um, polite behavior. Um, it, it, it is um, much more dangerous than that because, you know, either we uphold free speech for all or we uphold none, and in that includes ourselves. And that's what conformism does and self-censorship does. It means you only say what you think other people will find acceptable, or you, and you only say, really, you're only defending people you like, because then they'll like you back, you know? I mean, it's entirely gratuitous and quite narcissistic. And I think means, means we're, we're much too scared of um, challenging views or saying something new and original. And, you know, all sorts of new things come out of standing up against the status quo. You know, people, you know, whoever said, you know, the earth was round, I think got hung for it or, you know, sent to the gallows. You know, history has, has changed and ideas have improved because of people prepared to go against the grain. Sylvia Pankhurst, historically, was one of them in terms of fighting for women's rights. Winston Churchill didn't think women should have the vote. You know, people like Sylvia went to prison 28 times for saying what she thought and standing up uh, for women's rights, you know, all sorts of people in the civil rights movement and beyond have been prepared to say what they think and have been shot, imprisoned or terrorised. We are now have become so soft, if you like, and I think 
politically fearful, rather, is a, is a way of saying soft, that somebody might not like us on Twitter, we won't say anything. And there is, I think, a horrible... It's hard to know. It's a kind of chicken and egg. It's hard to know causally the evolution of such um, fear and distrust of other people. And that's probably an important thing to get to the root of. Um, but I think we've had a slow drip of this magnified in the past year and a half by people fearing other people. You know, if you live in a world where we see other human beings as a biohazard, you know, it comes to something and people do start reporting on on other people. And what used to be a bit of curtain twitching that you could always make a joke out of is now run of the mill. And people, you know, I remember even 10 years ago, people telling me that if they worked for certain corporations, um, they had to sign a clause saying they wouldn't be involved in any political activity whatsoever. You know, uh, unbelievable. I'm, I'm like, you cannot be serious. But I think you'll find that's pretty true now. But what's interesting is it's all done in a supposedly progressive guise, you know. Um, so now you will sign up to all sorts of equality and diversity statements for large corporations and will get fired if you step out of line on something. Um, I think, you know, even though we might want to support those diversity and equality ideas, cancelling people and losing their jobs because somebody said something a bit dodgy is frightening. It also means that we are never confident enough, and I think this is very important in education and what we say to young people, in encouraging people to challenge crappy ideas. It's always a third party that you go to. I know I've had these conversations with our Citizen TV volunteers and they've said to me, oh, well, what's wrong with cancel culture? You wouldn't, you know, what's wrong with canceling him? You wouldn't want him on your channel or to say anything anyway, would you? And what he's saying is disgusting or racist or, you know, sexist or something. And, and I think, it again, it's that we've lost our belief in our own capacity to challenge rubbish ideas. It's always someone else. I mean, it's so ludicrous, but underneath it is a rot, I think, in terms of our disbelief in our fellow man. Uh, I, I think some of the things that you say um, are very interesting and it's, a, it's an internal dialogue that I have quite a lot, um, especially things around moral purity, um, virtue signaling, censorship, um, and their halting of conversations and debates and progress, in my opinion, and imagination. And I think one of the things actually that halts progress the most is that people might not say things. It doesn't even necessarily mean if we are to say that there are absolute rights and wrongs, which I don't believe there are, even if people stop saying things out loud, it doesn't necessarily mean they understand or identify the wrong in what they're saying. So you mentioned equality and diversity, and obviously those are big conversations at the moment. And almost every meeting I go to at the moment um, veers onto this topic in some form. And there's been so many debates around, do we use the term BAME? No, we shouldn't use this anymore. We should use X or Y or Z. And each meeting, they seem to come up with a different um, term. And then whenever I ask someone to actually sort of maybe elaborate on why this statement's better than the other, they 
don't know. They just know they've been told not to say X. So part of me wonders as well whether um, the harm is in the statements that are being made or the harm is in the silencing of people because there's no learning in you just silencing yourself. Um, and it's not necessarily evolving anything or encouraging conversation or debate that leads ultimately to actual substantial change. Um, it's sort of just pushing it under the rug, I guess. Um, and then, yeah, the notion of moral purity and that any human being is completely infallible, fallible, or there's no notion of growth or learning within someone's lifetime it also troubles me a lot because life is all about learning and growing and mistakes and opinion forming and evolving. Um, we've spoken about a lot from free speech to the importance of citizen journalism to democratizing the media to challenging mainstream ideals, but what's the practicality of it? Because this is a lot of work to do. How do you sustain it? How do you actually practically do this? How do you make it work? It can only work based on the goodwill of a lot of other people like yourself. If you're prepared to stick your own neck out, you will find fellow you know, citizens who will support you and help you and you will learn from them. And I think, or secondly, always um, be prepared to be broke. You know, I, I, in the middle of, of, I don't know what we were doing, we, we were, I think we were making our early Ghana films, we down tool for three months and ran a catering van and we called it the Ferrari's Brawl Cafe, the world, right? And we asked people to put all their change in a tin. And I think in three months, we raised about six grand for the charity and then ran it for another six months on that money. I mean, you can turn your hand to anything. And I don't mind if you can still do, and it gives you enough time to do things you're passionate about. Obviously, when you do toil, and our peers in the developing world know this far better than we do, um, it's not um, conducive to reading or watching movies or TV or anything else because you're just knackered. Um, but if you're, you're fit and young and you can fit in whatever it takes, the possibilities are endless. Yeah. And, you know, think big always. You know, we'd love to. I'm not against having huge money. People accused us of all sorts. Oh, you're, you know, because we haven't supported some moratorium on woodcutting in Brazil, for example, which is true. Um, we must be funded by big oil. And, mm -hmm. and you're like, if only, you know, I don't have problems taking money off any of these big corporations because they're not going to dictate what I say, but chance would be a fine thing. So it's doing whatever it takes and, um, and realizing that you're not that special and neither are you really ever alone if you uh, are a bit courageous and it's always worth it, always worth it. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's really interesting, the notion of um, volunteering, how it might have been co-opted a little bit, but the pure sense of volunteering, your time for something that you're passionate in um, and also um, pooling resources and all of that. Um, but also the notion of um, activism in its pure sense, because I think activism has very much become quite uh, popularized and commercialized. But you mentioned there a little bit about uh, 
funding and taking funding. And our other guest on this episode is actually someone, a funder who has funded us to investigate the news and media space um, and to create independent media. And I always find it quite interesting relationships with funders and notion of messaging and aims and maintaining impartiality really interesting um, when it comes to working with funders and taking funding from people. So I'm interested in how you sort of maintain that um, because I think you said earlier in the conversation, often a lot of these relationships come with certain terms and conditions and navigating that whilst also staying true to your vision and mission. Um, does that pose you any challenges? Uh, yeah, I think I think always. I don't think we're immune. I think, you know, it's very hard to not look over your shoulder or will a particular funder approve of that? You know, the, the, those things are very real. You know, you, you, by writing down, being forced to um, put on paper through the bureaucracy that funding applications are, your outputs and outcomes, you are already going through a process that predetermines what's possible. In other words, limits your creativity necessarily. Even if it doesn't stipulate, and, and many of them do, what ideas and things, you know, because some of them will say, nothing that brings your, you're signing, you know, in the small print, nothing that brings a particular corporation or funder or trust whoever you've gone to into disrepute in other words don't say anything controversial is what they're really saying and of course you know and you you need that money to pay you know we pay our volunteer center bills or or to get the cameras serviced or to get some new 4k gear or whatever it might be you know you do find yourself looking over your shoulder and you you do there's two things one i would say don't sell your soul ever. So never ever go for funding that is about fitting their agenda. Only go for funding that fits your agenda. In other words, funding that isn't going to try and dictate what you can and can't do, and that might change. And B, insist on your outputs and outcomes being as open-ended as possible because otherwise you are putting a block on who you work with collectively and creatively and what they can and can't do. And it might end up in something else. You know, we might have a citizen TV project that doesn't end up in a film or a video at all, but I don't know, ends up in a readathon or at Christmas we did a, a Babylon, you know, where people just spoke for eight hours and, you know, on stuff that would cause a lot of funders a hernia, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, and we did it and actually we raised money doing it yeah money does call the shots you know and people Indeed. get really upset about the mainstream media's relationship you know all of them you know whether it's lord rothmere's press or um murdoch or you know the guardian is no are not angels by any stroke of the imagination and their history is pretty shocking actually um uh you know, people say, oh, you know, the problem is it's the money. And I, I'm not sure that that's always the case because sometimes, yes, money talks, but I think often it's the closeness to government that's a problem, which means you fail to criticise. And a lot of the big trusts and foundations are probably really conformist as well. There's very few that don't conform to the government agenda. 
So you will find, you look at different funding pots available each year, and they are entirely according to what the government has decided is um, they want to see happen. So the money goes to what uh, the latest government priority. It's not about public need. And, you know, that limits it. Yeah. Sorry, I've gone on. No, certainly we, we're going to do an episode exploring charity and charity industrial complex and all of those things because I think it's really um, important and interesting. I could talk to you all day, Kerry. Honestly, we haven't even really scratched the surface with, with all of the knowledge that you could share with us, but um, I'm conscious that I've had you for a while oh now. God, so, so to end, um, what could our listeners do that have listened to you and been inspired by you? Um, if there was sort of one starting point or action point, whether that be involving the media and um, citizen journalism, or whether that be just making some form of change in their immediate environment, what would be your sort of one tip or low-hanging fruit, let's say, uh, of advice for them? If you feel overwhelmed or you think it's just a so, so huge a thing, um, then there's a reason for that. And the reason is, is there is so much out there and there is so much that's possible. And my only tip would, would be, be, be positive and recognize your own capacity to make, um, make a difference. And I always think, because people think, oh, what are you really doing? And I always remember the P in the princess story. So, you know, the P gets put in the princess's bed and I think she has 12 mattresses and ends up really, really bruised because she's so delicate. Well, I think it's worth remembering that government and the state and often the elites and people who seem to be the ones that are making life hard for you or your friends or, you know, that need, you know, uh, changing. Remember the P in the bed effect and be the P and the change you can wreak or the damage you can do, probably not a good way of saying it, is extraordinary. You really can. And it might just be that you pose a question. It might just be that you think about what do I really want to change? And is that about society or is that about me? And go from there. So Mona, I feel like I say this literally every week, but again, to fantastic guests who give us so much food for thought. I feel like in theory, I know a lot about these subjects, but every week I'm like, mm, yeah. And it makes me see things from a new perspective. Uh, what stood out to you this week? A couple of things. I think, first of all, um, the discussion that I think has come up in a lot of our episodes, actually, which is this whole battle constantly between, you know, is social media and in general kind of, you know, broader, let's say, access to media, etc., a good or a bad thing? You know, has it created genuinely a sense of democracy or has it just meant that we can all make loads of noise and clutter and that anybody can say anything? And as you said earlier, you know, with fast news, it's more just about having said something rather than having said the right thing or the accurate thing or the well-researched thing. So, you know, 
I think Kerry, you know, touched upon that, you know, Karina touched upon that, I think. So really like looking at what does democratizing media really mean as opposed to literally just going, well, I guess you can all shout out something if you really want to. Um, and I guess in that vein as well, when Kerry literally said, you know, we have so many means of communication available to us now, but they're still useless if they're out of people's reach. And I feel like actually there might be an illusion now that they are in everybody's reach. Um, and we talk about this a lot, right? Technically, yeah, we literally have. We have our mobile phones, we have our laptops, we've got our really, you know, we've got our podcast recording software and all these things, but distribution is still a massive, massive issue. So you actually might genuinely have the capacity to sit there and produce some sort of media. But well and truly, what chance do you still have if you're trying to get it out there and get it heard and get it listened to against massive, massive corporations, right? And I think that's also then where we look at what the role of funders is because you need that, you need a platform, you need money. Does that allow you to remain independent? And we did discuss with Karina, what does independent even mean, right? Independent of who, independent of what? So very existential. <laughs> really, yeah. yeah, and I think I think it's a conversation that applies to the media, but it's actually a conversation that we have about many of the different topics we cover in the sense that it's essentially about infrastructure and capacity, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And so if we look at grassroots groups, for example, the people on the ground doing a lot of the work, connecting with a lot of the people is great, but actually often they have a lot less resource than these bigger charities and what compromise does that lead to then and it's what untelevised sort of came out of wasn't it those un unseen voices and unseen people that are doing a lot of the work working out of their cars they don't have a private office working out of their bedroom all of these things that you do to make things work but there's some form of sacrifice and also like you say who does that mean is getting heard and who does that mean is not getting heard um and I found it interesting also when Karina spoke about the Guardian and where it actually started versus where it is now and the journey that maybe these organisations take when they are building capacity and maybe some of the compromises that come there as well in the sense that even when you start in a place of radicalism and I guess the, the Guardian is one of the better mainstream um, platforms that we do have but it still very much has to be a profitable company like um, Karina said and then Kerry spoke about with the funding as well um, some of the compromises and the the things that you have to consider. So definitely. Uh, and the earlier thing you spoke about is a battle I have a lot between I passionately believe in citizen journalism and the fact that everyone should have access to journalism, media, the creation of journalism, democratising um, media, I, I love, and it's basically my entire job. But again, I'm so conscious of the noise and so conscious of just trying to decipher that and trying to navigate that. Um, and also um the false idea that everyone does have access to these things we saw during lockdown that actually digital exclusion mm. is a massive thing there are actually a lot of people that don't have mobile phones or do have mobile phones and don't have data and all of these different things so there's still a lot of work to be done there but i'm passionately believing the importance of citizen journalism and i'm really happy that that's the way that things are going as someone who tried the mainstream for a little bit and just was really really suffered with um how exclusionary it is and the approach to things there i mean i guess it kind of you know again it gets us on to you know i mean like you said like exposure i mean you know everybody's up against even like algorithms on social media so social media has an illusion of the you know of having democratized 
um, media, but actually, you know, we even know now how much paid adverts matter. And, you know, mm. so there is, so there's so many layers still. And I think one thing that we, again, have spoken about a lot, we spoke about it actually in our capitalism episode, socialism episode. So it also goes right back to education right so yes. actually if we're going to come at it from this idea that journalism maybe still needs an element of like expertise or investigative mm. power or the ability i mean we constantly are hearing now about how even pretty educated people might struggle to decipher real facts on the internet mm. right and like yeah. i i I can I'm you know consider myself fairly educated you know but actually I don't even sometimes think I would know how to fact check everything and what to believe and what not and do you have that time so you know if you right from the get-go don't necessarily maybe have a good level of like state education and widespread education in society then yes again are you going to give everybody access to telling stories and present media but genuinely maybe not with the best ability to go mm. I learned this fact and I'm just going to say it again but I don't really know if it's true and that is nothing to do with any kind of prejudice like, like I said I'm putting myself in that right I think this past year of COVID was a prime example of just how much people had their facts and figures from different sources and they all could have sounded quite legitimate yeah. or even just the interpretation of them but I think leading on from that is the interesting um, discussion around both critical thinking and building our critical thinking like as something that we value in society and maybe as taught in schools and stuff like that but also I found really interesting the different guests contrasting views on censorship mm-hmm. so I really really loved Kerry's phrase um ban nothing question everything mm. because I think that's such a great philosophy whilst I do um, empathize with Kalina's standpoint of banning sort of hate speech and stuff I think what you asked her in response to that which is what counts of hate as hate speech and who decides that is really important um because yeah how do we come to that conclusion how do we decide mm-hmm, mm-hmm unless we're going to agree that there are absolutes and there are absolute rights and wrongs, which I'm not sure is something I ascribe to without becoming too philosophical, <laughs> um, then I don't know how we will ever come to a consensus on, yeah, what classifies as hate speech, et cetera, et cetera. We all have our different opinions on that. So the idea of allowing everything to exist, but actually questioning everything, I think is a really good philosophy to have when approaching the media. But that probably does have to come with some sort of training because the thing is with our education system, it doesn't think, teach us to think. It teaches us to pass exams and it teaches us particular curriculum, but it doesn't necessarily teach us to think and mm-hmm. to question. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe that we would have to move towards that in order for that to become sort of like a standard way of approaching things and that might then help us decipher things better I don't know well yeah I mean we all know that the dominant perhaps ideology of a society is going to decide what is uh, you know considered the right and wrong things to say right and and you know Kerry speaks about corporations putting it into their job contracts that you know an employee can't be seen at certain types of protests and Mm. stuff now in theory a corporation should be an apolitical entity right they're a business they're making their money they're part of the free market everything goes in the free market as we've heard in our capitalism episode and so in theory the worker goes they do their job if they're performing their job well and making money for the company then really and truly how can they be politically censored in that environment, right? Like, you know, what what that that just goes to show that corporations are actually more political and hold a more political ideology than we think. And, you know, Kerry spoke about how funding even is a lot, a lot related to almost closeness to government, right? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, even funders 
the initiatives they decide to fund at different times, albeit probably incredibly charitable, will be decided somewhat on what a dominant social policy is at the time, right? So, I mean, in that sense, I think we can really be very impressed with a a foundation like Lankelly, who've kind of said, you know, let's actually try and really fund as independent, well, as independent as possible kind of, you know, news and media, because that's what we need to tackle marginalization and disadvantage in society, right? But it's yeah I feel like this is a very I, I don't know the more we're talking now I'm finding this really existential and I'm worrying yes. that we're not giving our <laughs> listeners any practical tips they're going to say what all you guys are about solution journalism so I mean practical tips I mean Fazeo you say this all the time you know how important you think it is to subscribe and actually like maybe put even a little bit you know your money or your investment on your time mm. or your resource into independent media sources yeah. to allow them to kind of be seen and grow yeah it's a double-edged sword isn't it between wanting to sort of exist outside of certain structures but also having to be in within these structures like facebook like instagram like in order to get yourself seen and heard and unfortunately you have to feed the beast a little bit so liking sharing subscribing rating reviewing are the things that help platforms grow and then once they have that platform hopefully then they can begin to disrupt a bit more um but yeah there's a certain level or foundation that you have to reach so that makes a massive difference to smaller organisations in terms of supporting things that exist. And in terms of doing things yourself, like I said, um, we have so much resource now within in our back pockets. Mobile phones, you can do, you can both record, edit and distribute media. So um, try and reach that middle ground that we're speaking at about between feeling empowered as a citizen to record the world around you and report what you're seeing and hearing and sharing information and trying to fact check and make sure that what you are sharing is based in some truth and is critical. But yeah, there's lots of resources, even on the Philanthropy website that can show you how, if you want to get start, get started in citizen journalism, you can. And we'll also obviously share the World Bite and World Right resources that talk a lot about that as well. And we will link you to Lang Kelly's um, website so you can see the um, the other members of the cohort that, that have been sort of selected um, on this independent news and media journey, um, as well as um, some fact-checking kind of guides and resources, yeah. right? On, and actually how people m- might be able to do that when they are themselves resharing. I mean, I thought it was really interesting. No, no, sorry. That was, I heard this from somebody else recently who was saying that... Um, Twitter apparently now when you go to reshare an article actually comes up with a little notification that says do you want to read the article first so it's literally assuming you may not have read it you may have read the headline and want to reshare it and it just prompts you to go do you want to just read it yeah I mean that's <laughs> great but such a sad side of, know, of the times that we're in um, <laughs> like there's a probability that you probably, probably haven't, haven't actually looked at this before you share before it. you share it so maybe even that is just the, the word of the day is read the articles, go to the footnotes, look at the result, you know, look at the kind of like links and resources that different information has been gathered from. And just take things slightly more slowly. I think one of the reasons that we just share, share, share is because we're actually, we're in some sort of artificial rush. Mm. Um, If we take things more slowly and we're more critical, I mean, the articles still exist, the news still exists. So just take things more slowly, slow, slow news, I guess that's exactly what it is. And I think that helps. So yeah, um... We're going <laughs> to... So much. <laughs> I know, I know. We're, we're going to reflect and pause and take things um, slowly and, as always, be back with you again in two weeks' time um, with, um, you know, with further topics. And as always, 
tell us what do you want us to talk about? What do you want us to, we, we've actually been starting to get a lot of emails from people who are saying to us, could you cover this? Could you cover that? You know, we have thoughts on, so that, that's amazing. Please do contact us. You can reach out on Instagram and Twitter, um, untelevised underscore TV. Um, you can email talk to um, untelevised at gmail.com and that's the digit two. Um, and we will do our best to kind of pick those up and actually explore. Again, it might be that it takes a bit of time before that topic comes out because we do want to try and research it and find the most appropriate guests and so on. So bear with us um, in in our sort of slow news distribution. Mm. And um, yeah, we hope that you enjoy the sunshine and um, yeah, we'll speak to you in a couple of weeks time. Yeah, speak to you then. And don't forget to follow, subscribe, <laughs> rate and review. <laughs> Bye guys. Bye. Call me a dreamer, idealistic believer With my head in a cloud, I don't want to come down But my feet are planning on starting the ground But my ground, my ground is a cloud